Hi, this is Paul Siegel, and you're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. And on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to get our recap of HelgaCon 14, which is our indie house convention that we hold annually with friends up in Massachusetts. And uh, we'll talk about all the games we had and surprises we had, all that and more today on Wandering DMs. But before we get to that, I'd just like to remind everyone that, as always, we will be having our after-party chat at the conclusion of this show. That's at 2 p.m. today. Uh, We'll be gathering on our private Discord server to have a private video chat with all of our patrons. If you would like to join in on that, uh, you can do so by visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash wanderingdms. Yeah, part of our favorite, favorite part of the week. And uh, I said this to you a couple minutes ago, Paul, but for other people, we uh, our Wandering DMs channel on YouTube just hit 2,000 subscribers in the last day or two. So if you were subscriber number 2,000, welcome. Thank you so much for putting us over that threshold. And if you're not currently subscribing, you might as well just hit that. You might as well just hit that on YouTube and get us to 2001. And we'd appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) You would. That's our new, that's our new milestone. After hitting two thousand, our next milestone is two thousand and one. We have we very like fine grain gold. One of has very very fine grain metrics. <laughs> oh, I'm just sad that it has to be discrete, and we can't have continuous continuously measured numbers. That was that was too deep a cut, wasn't it? Was, oh yeah, yeah. Save, save that for your math. Math, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, let's 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 talk about this. We um, uh, every every year um, around uh, the beginning of April, um, Dan and I uh, go to a, a gathering, a, a mini convention, as it were, about twenty five people. We rent a house out on the Cape because it's cheap. Because who wants to be out on the Cape in April? Um. It's, it's pretty nice here. Actually, actually, here I have a couple of photos I'll share real quick. Uh, so, so this this is the house we rent, which is just this gorgeous right. location uh, on Plymouth, Massachusetts. A really nice house. Um, cram as many people in as we can, and it's and it's April, right? So, like, even though it's a beach house, um, the weather is not the best. Uh, you know, we've gorgeous view of the ocean, but probably not going to take any walks on the beach that time of year. So, we stay indoors and play D and D all weekend. Super fun. Yeah. Yep. And frequently it's kind of cold, drizzly. Uh, it was, it was, once again, we got up there and it was okay. And then it was pretty cold and no one wanted to go outside. So it's yep. a, it's a perfect it's a nice, time. Nice cozy uh, wood stove on the inside. We sit around, play, play some, play some uh, role playing games. Yeah. It's a good time. And, and I got to say, if, if, if I forget to say this, uh, Paul's the one that organizes this. So Paul, puts it together, rents the house, uh, wrote the software that does the scheduling of games, which, as I've said before, is better than any other convention that I've ever witnessed. Um, so big kudos to Paul for uh, getting us all back together every year and uh, remembering why we like to do this. Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, um, we, when we started this, uh, there was no fancy software or anything. We just kind of showed up into a vacation house on Friday evening and we stayed through Sunday. And that the, the very first thing that struck me was that we spent the entire night Friday just talking about what we were going to play. And I was like, Wait, what, a, what a loss. We should have been playing stuff on Friday. And there was only eight of us, if you can believe it. There were eight people. Is that right? And it's really? Still, yeah, there was eight of us and it still took a whole night to <laughs> schedule out what the heck we're going to play. Now with 25 people, man, forget it. Uh, definitely, definitely worth some planning ahead of time for that kind of thing. We, st- we started with eight opinionated people. And then yeah, and I think yeah. I think I think the re- I think the resolution was like all eight of you run eight different games and we'll find more people to play be the players. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Uh, so Dan, what do you what do you want to pick into? What, what any any particular highlights you want to jump into? Or you want to go through this linearly? What do you what do you think? Either either way is good. I, I you know I will say I will say that oddly I think possibly for the first time ever that what what a great weekend Just, you know wonderful people we get together wonderful events we get to we get to play in the the one surprise was that possibly for the first time ever you and I Paul didn't play in any games together um, yeah, as the quirk of the scheduling of this of this year so I've been looking forward to today's review. Because even though we were physically together, physically yeah. in the same house, we didn't interact very much. And I've been, I really need to sit down with Paul and see how it went. So that's yeah. what's happening yeah. right now. Great, great, great. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me talk a little bit before we dive into the specific games. One of the interesting things, so this, this was our 14th year doing this. Um, and one of the things that fascinates me is to kind of look at the trends over time. And now I'm sure this is very specific to our little local group and nothing to do with overall gaming trends. Maybe. Maybe. Um, but like I said, we grew from eight to about 25, actually fairly quickly. And one of the things I've noticed is as the years have passed, we have shifted from more adventure games to more horror games. So we seem to be more into horror these days. And we've also shifted to smaller tables. We used to have a lot of big tables. Now, Dan, you and I still occasionally run a game with like eight or 10 players. But more often, I'm seeing games where, where the GMs want three to five players. And uh, it's actually crunching the schedule a bit because uh, it's, uh, you know, fewer, you know, it's a smaller player to GM ratio, which means, of course, you need more GMs, you need more games. Um, so it's crunching the schedule rooms. a little bit, but yeah, more rooms. We, we, yeah. we run about, each person plays about five games over the course of the weekend, and there's usually three or four games running concurrently uh, in, in the building somewhere. Um, so anyway, that's in- interesting. Footnote, I guess. Is ho- are horror games on the rise, or is that just the tastes of our specific players? I don't know. I think it I I I I think that's partly the taste of our specific players. There's a lot of uh there's a lot of uh taste for that, mm-hmm. I think, in our group. And even I, I used to not do that. And then I guess it was last year, the first time I actually ran one, uh, <clears throat> which surprised a lot of people, including me. And uh, I actually get at least one on my schedule a year this time. Um, and, uh, you know, super, super well done. So I've been enjoying that more and more actually over time myself. I like, I, I like to imagine that that surprise didn't hit till you were sitting down at the table and you're like, I'm running what? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> I think I digested it at that point, but there was a lot of, yeah. it was in a room where people have to walk through to get to the kitchen. So there was a whole lot of like double takes as people came through. It was like, what, what's going on there? Who's, these, what, who's, doing, who's doing what now? 
<laughs> so let's. Uh, what were your? Uh, you tell me what what you what you did, Paul. What was what was the what was your favorite things that you did uh, this year at Helgon? Tell me about uh, one. Tell me about, tell me about your number one. Pick your number one favorite thing that happened. Number one. Tell me about that and nothing else. My, my, my number one. Um, honestly, my my favorite game that was a game I got to play in, run by Max, called uh, Jason Statham's Big Vacation, which okay. is um, so. When I saw him list this game in the scheduler, I actually gave him crap because it, it you know, it's it, it's quirky and it's funny and it's silly and and his the description text that he wrote up for the game reflected that. Uh, apparently, you're 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 the entourage of Jason Statham, who's a real life movie star. For those who don't know, uh, action action star. And um, your your goal is to kind of uh, make sure he has a good time without killing himself or getting arrested, and um, <laughs> and so he, so it's got this funny description, and and I gave Max a hard time. I was like, "Geez, you didn't even you didn't even list the system you're using for this weirdo game you're running," and he said it's right there in the title. And I looked at the title; it was Jason Statham's Big Vacation. And I scratched my head for a minute, and then I looked it up, and that's actually the name of the system. It's a, I, there's a system <laughs> on DriveThruRPG called Jason Statham's Big Vacation, and I'm going to say that as many times as I can because uh, it delights Max, who always wants to stay Jason's Jason Statham's Big Vacation. Um, <laughs> a little bit of a tongue twister. Uh, it's ridiculous. A ridic- it was a ridiculous game, and it was hilariously fun. I I think that was number two on my list of priorities. I really, as soon as I read that description, I started howling with laughter the first time I saw it myself. Uh, it's perfect for Max to run, and I really wanted to get in that game, and there was apparently too much demand. So I think you took my what, slot. One of, one of the nicest touches is uh, Max had a laptop sitting next to him, which he turned to face the players. that was just running a looping slideshow of actual paparazzi shots of Jason Statham on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really actually quite delightful um yeah we definitely had a fictionalized jason statham like like there was not enough of us who knew real jason statham lore to, to come up there was certainly references but um at some point they were talking somebody was talking about his wife um and, and i had known because i briefly looked up on wikipedia jason statham just to get a few facts into my head and I knew that he was not married, that he is a fiance. And, I, and so I corrected them. I said, oh, you mean his fiance? And quickly, the fiance was named Fiance Knowles, um, <laughs> which, you know, and then at some point, Fiance Knowles got shot. And, and so we were worried <laughs> that she was dying. Uh, so as a very good talent agent who's trying to make sure that Jason Statham had a good time, I quickly went through my Rolodex to look up a backup fiance and ended up. <laughs> Flying in um, Gwen fiance, um, and then and then I was really pushing myself to try and find a third uh, female celebrity whose name vaguely sounds like fiance, and uh, wasn't wasn't able to. So so that's my challenge to you, folks, uh, viewers in the chat uh, or or watching this later, and 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 um, uh, writing in on the comments. Give me your best uh, fake celebrity name. With one of the one of the pieces of the name replaced with the word Beyonce. Great, great, there you go. brilliant. That's my challenge. <laughs> uh, let me let me throw up uh, let me throw up uh, Laura Sudo's question here in the chat. Uh, so Laura Sudo is asking. Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask if everyone I think in the game that you were playing was a fan. 
Uh, I don't think I've seen an actual Jason Statham film. And I agree. I actually, I have not seen a Jason Statham film either. Oh, no, no. Was everybody I mean, in I the was, game a big Jason Statham fan? No. Um, I'm sure some, <laughs> some folks were like Jason who. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I remember Jason Statham from uh, his, his earlier, uh, earlier works when he was in... Um, uh, the movie Snatch or uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Uh, right. I was a big fan of those movies. Um, uh, he's been in, um, I want to say he's he's been in the, um, I think he's been in the Fast and Furious series, right? And then there was a spinoff movie, uh, Hobbs right. and Shaw. Um, right. And, so, and, and I know these things only because there were references to them in the game. Um, yeah. at, at some point, right. um, uh, uh, Dwayne the Rock John. Uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> can't even spit this out. Dwayne the Rock Johnson showed up uh, in the game, uh, which we assumed was there to promote Hobbs and Shaw too. Um, but it's it's such a weird, weird game. the The main villain is called Wesley Sniper, um, and the main mechanic around Wesley Sniper is that he's always at a distance. The players can never get close to him ever. So <laughs> like, you can't actually close the distance with Wesley Sniper. He's always at sniping distance. So yeah, it's such a weird, weird, funny game. And Max is rolling on tables and then having to improvise crazy stuff about like how, you know, locations we were, we were at some, we were touring, I think a, a chandelier museum. And then uh, the, the random tables told Max that Wesley Sniper was attacking Jason Statham with eels. Uh, and so Max had to improvise some crazy, he had some elaborate chandelier that included a glass globe full of water and there were eels swimming around it and Wesley Sniper shot one of them. Eels dropped. Okay. It's a very elaborate, ridiculous nonsense. And and you're constantly managing these kind of four stats on Jason Statham that you're trying to influence. And that is um, how bored he is, how um, dead, how arrested <laughs> Um, how arrested? How arrested? Yeah, on a scale of like one to one to eight, how arrested is Jason Statham? That's how, how brilliant. Dead is he? Um, That's brilliant. Bored, and there was another one I can't remember what the fourth one was, but yeah, yeah, it was ridiculous. That's great. Let me let me pivot, and and I'm going to continue praising yeah. Max because the, the the game that I did get in with him uh, was Welcome Travelers, which I can't find any sign of online but apparently again that's a um i guess that's a, a game system i think possibly on drive through rpg uh by jason cordova and it uses uh it, it's partly notable for our weekend because apparently it uses the same back system as brindlewood bay by jason cordova mm -hmm. which had a fairly recent kickstarter and is that one is fairly easy to find online it's getting some publicity and our friend Colleen, fact, Colleen ran a game. Ran, ran a game of that. Yeah. Were you in that game? Were you in the Brindlewood Bay game? I was not. That was that was on my uh, list. I didn't get into that I want to talk either. about Brindlewood Bay, and neither of us played it. Darn it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So I've at least played a game using that system. Is what I'm told. With with Max running Welcome Travelers, and again, that's one of our uh, kind of more narrative style horror themed games. Perfect for Max. Perfect for Max to run it perfect for the people that were in the room playing it because it's a little bit of a mix of uh, horror and comedy. And uh, one of the things, at least in this, in this session, is that it had very well-defined 
phases is you had a day turn and you had a night turn and you could pick certain activities to do in day at night. In some ways you're restricted and you had specifically different mechanics for what could happen or what the results were during day turns versus night turns. And for me, that worked really, really well that the day turns were a little bit more, at least for us, a little bit more comedy themed and we could have fun with that. And the night turns were a little bit more explicitly horror themed. And at least for me, uh, for someone who doesn't play a lot of narrative horror games, some people are very, um, you know, inculcated in the horror role play. And at least for me, like for a four hour session, it can possibly get a bit much. If someone's truly doing a bunch of deep acting horror role play, I'm a little bit, it's, it's a little bit much for me. So the fact that this system had very explicit uh, back and forth of now we're a little bit lighter, now we're a little bit heavier, now we're a little bit lighter, now we're a little bit heavier, worked super well for me that I knew that if we were in a heavy part, we were gonna like literally dawn was going to happen and we were going to have a lighter session a little bit later so for me i don't know if that's exactly how brindlewood bay works um but again of course brindlewood bay itself is advertised as a mix of uh murder she wrote and lovecraft and i think a lot look at it and quickly say it's a mix of golden girls and hp lovecraft um and and that same kind of a little bit light and a little bit dark intermixed for me was a was a was a smashing we had so much fun with that with with welcome travelers based on that system mm. interesting. interesting yeah i mean that's, that's I fascinating because certainly the horror games i run certainly have comedy in them um it's not not and it's not like intentionally it's not like comedy that i've written into the mm -hmm. game i haven't done that intentionally yeah. it just sort of naturally is evoked through the through the situation which is interesting, right? Because I feel like conversely, when we run D and D, you always like to say that all our D and D games become hard, right? Yes. So somehow, right. somehow, what I'm what I'm hearing is that you and I just cannot stay on theme when we're running games. Um, uh, interesting. interesting. <laughs> I, I like to think of that as Shakespearean, Paul, of a mix, okay. a, a mix of a, a mixture of emotions which heighten the contrast. So I like Excellent. to. That's how I like to think of what's happening for us. That's that's delightful. Yeah, I haven't I, I did back Brindlewood Bay on Kickstarter. I haven't actually read through right. it yet. I'm I'm eager to do so. Uh, I'm curious to see what it's like. I'm disappointed that neither of us played in the game that got ran. So mm -hmm. obviously we can't talk about it yet, but maybe in the future we'll uh, we'll do a show that talks about it a little. I was very happy with the I was very happy with the mechanics of the of the version that I that I did play in and I'm, and I'll say I'm surprised uh, there's know, already a game that's based on it because like it itself just came out so there's already derivative works that's fascinating. Uh, someone could possibly correct me. I mean, I'm guessing it's the other way around. I'm guessing this was a system that was being developed or play tested previously and got rolled out as Brindlewood Bay as a as a product. Maybe is my Complete yeah. speculation. It, it does jive a bit with how Jason Cordova does his stuff, right? There's a lot of playtesting, a lot of community input. It wouldn't surprise me if someone in his community, as they were playtesting Brindlewood Bay, was like, I like this, but I'm going to morph it into my own thing that I like and get something like that come out. Could I could I, it, uh, it seemed very so, well so developed. I'll see that it seemed very, what, what seemed is, very what well is, developed. Well, give us what is top level of greetings travelers then? How is it? What, what's the theme hmm. or what's the content? Yeah. 
Okay, so apparently there's a larger, I guess there's a larger world that we could continue playing as a campaign. Most of our horror games are, you know, one shot sessions. So mm -hmm. it was a little bit unusual to, to, to see that there was like a larger context that you could interface with with more sessions. Uh, this one at least was um, <clears throat> um, people who were in high school circa 90s, 1990s, 2000, uh, and were fans of a weird mystery public access television show are brought back to their town in order to try to help someone that disappeared and get involved in the horrible mystery. Right. And then, and then it turns right. out there's a larger conspiracy that you, as you try to dig up information about this weird public access show, that's kind of the center point it's for a bunch of weird that makes stuff. Sense. That's, that's, that's my understanding of Brindlewood Bay is that it starts out kind of murder. Right. She wrote or, or episodic where you're like little old ladies who are in a book club who are solving murders. Right. And they're like, Oh, they solved this right. murder. Right. And then, you know, the, the, the joke about those kind of murder TV shows is always uh, those murder mystery TV shows is always like, man, an awful lot of murders seem to happen <laughs> in this person's hometown. Right. And so then <laughs> in, indeed they start to find out, Oh, it's some kind of conspiracy. Like these things are all right. You know, related and there's some horror underneath it all. Right. Right. That's that's a delightful, delightful explanation for that. You know, I will. I'll point out two things. One of is a murder mystery show. Yeah, totally. And I'll I'll point out two things about this particular game. So that so Max was running off a scenario that was a one sheet, right? And mm -hmm. I think Max himself wrote about ten times as much content to bulk it up, but he's running off a one sheet. And I think that it specified a care an NPC you could run into in town, and it probably dictated about two lines of a mm, somewhat uh, over-enthusiastic, confused uh, wrestler wannabe superhero, I guess is probably what it said. And that couldn't have been, that was the perfect NPC for Max to run. It, it, it could, I mean, he's run wrestling themed games in the past and he completely went to town with it. And we, com he completely stole the show with that. <laughs> and I was laughing so hard that I had to grab onto my face to not make too much of a spectacle. And multiple people said I was actually worried that Dan was going to have, like, was going to die. <laughs> like, like, multiple people were apparently actually worried about my health because I was too much in hysterics, um, which is completely, completely a, a badge of honor for for Max's amazing role playing. And I will also say that I was I was playing a character who was like a fairly nasty, uh, a fairly a fairly sinister guy, and I'll I'll say was based on a character from uh, the comic book writer Kieran Gillen, who we've had on the past. Kieran Gillen's phonogram uh, with his main character David Cole at, at the at the moment when he just starts the series, and he's a fairly immoral, fairly immoral individual at that point. And I was really bothered after the fact by how easy it was for me to be a terrible, like a truly, really <laughs> sinister person, like a really actively cryptically sinister person. And it was like really, really easy for me to like gaslight the other characters. And I was really upset. I, I'm gonna, maybe I just have enough practice playing evil and evil characters that I just have that mm. in that we, my wheelhouse. But there was a couple of things that came out of my mouth and I was like, 
oh, I did not want to know that I had that. (laughs) 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 That was, oh, that was, that was sinister on like three, three or four different levels. And kudos to the, you know, kudos to the other players um, for playing along with, with that actually, because, you know, in a lot of D&D games, sometimes, I don't know if you know this or not, I play a lot of clerics. And in my, in my history with that, I, you know, cuts them out of his own games. But uh, so I frequently have a history of doing the like, well, I'll heal you if you come to our church service for our deity this weekend and having other play other players just stiff arm that and say, nope, not in my character. Absolutely not going to do that. And then me going, well, no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I have a problem with this cleric character now. He's not interfacing with the world very well, apparently, and being a little bit frustrated with that. But in this game, the other players were like 100 percent super willing to play along with uh, (laughs) my character's sinister subterfuge. And that was like really satisfying. So big kudos to them. That's great. That's great. Um, okay, I want to I want to switch gears a little bit here, and I want to talk about D and D because that's you know please our thing. We like to talk about D and D, and both of us ran some this weekend, uh, or le- the last weekend rather, and uh, that's actually interesting for me because frankly, uh, you know, pointing out earlier that this trend towards towards horror, as some folks know, I've uh, been working on my own horror system called Fearful Ends. Check out fearfulends.com. Coming to Kickstarter soon. And I've been so focused on that that for a while now, I've been running just Fearful Ends at every convention I go to. And so for the first time in quite some time at this point, I, I sat down and I was like, I'm going to run an OD&D game. So I was very excited to do that. Very happy to kind of get back to my roots there. Um, and, uh, and you ran a couple of uh, OD&D games, Dan, including um, uh, the last installment of the Slaver series. Which is fascinating I because I ran the Slaver series. I was on a Slaver series kick like 10 years ago, almost exactly 10 years ago, because we looked this up, mm-hmm. right? Because yep. you said, did you run this at Hogacon before? And I had to look it up. And I ran it exactly 10 years ago in 2013. I ran this very same module. Uh, and in fact, one of the players played in both of those mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm. Did he remember is my question. He did. He did not anything. He did not. I I said it, and he was, and I, and he was like, "Really? I did." I'm like, "Yeah, I." You played with Paul. I was like, "Oh, Paul, right? I remember that was like, I guess that was the first year I came, and it seemed, it seemed very strange. That's that's what that's what he guys like. Yeah, I was in a very strange game the first time, and it was really hard for me to parse that. Um, uh, and that was the (laughs) only thing. That was the only thing that came to mind, I guess. And of course, so the so I've been running the series sequentially year after year at our convention, uh, actually since 2018. And then of course we had a two year gap in there along the way. Most of so the so if if you do know about this, this is the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons A series, which was the which is known as the Slaver series from a tournament like in 1981 or something like that or 1980, I guess. And so um, most of the modules have two sessions. So usually I've been running two sessions out of a module each year. This last one, which is probably the most famous, uh, which is called In the Dungeons of the Slave Lords, only has one big scenario. So I only had one to run this year. And of course, this is the one that is famous slash infamous for uh, throwing, you know, without any control over it whatsoever, throwing the player characters into a dungeon stripping them of all their gear and all their spells and all their resources entirely and then using 
using only their wits and what's in the dungeon, which is very ridiculously little, having to escape with their lives. Um, so some people love this, and some people oh, well, are bothered by I say, it. I I I played this scenario at a convention, okay, in the um, around 2010 or so, probably. Um, and this is the reason I got onto the slaver's kick. I, I had so much fun playing in this okay. scenario. I was like, I have okay. to read them. I have to run them. Uh, I thought it was amazing. Okay. Uh, how'd it go? How'd it go for you? Let me just, let me just set, yeah. let me just set the stage because as I was prepping this, I noticed, you know, there's a, the, the first page has module background. It's got notes for the dungeon master. And let me just read, uh, one paragraph out of the notes to the dungeon master for in the dungeon of the slave lords. It says, um, uh, this is an unusual scenario and the characters start almost totally bereft of equipment and spells. Many players think of their characters in terms of their powers and possessions rather than as people. Such players will probably be totally at a loss for the first few minutes of play. It is likely that they will be angry at the DM for putting them in such an unfair situation. They will demand or big concessions, <clears throat> all caps. Do not give them any help, even if they make you feel sorry for them. Inform the players they must rely on what they have, not what they used to have, and that this includes their brains and their five senses. Good players will actually welcome the challenge of this scenario. Um, so I, I read that to my players going I assume, hey. I assume the Dan Collins reaction to this is like, you're just describing how I run D&D. What, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know yeah it's <laughs> pretty though pretty i mean close. Players, but even I more so players I, I see players, players, no concessions no concessions today nothing you get what's you get what's yeah. in the module um Great. so that Great. set the tone that set the tone so i think that um uh, it, very interesting I think among the uh, surprises was um, like it, like one player was expressed surprise after the fact that he knew going in, this is how it started, but he assumed, this was actually our friend, Stephen Buckley. He assumed that within the first hour of play, you'd break out, you'd, you'd overcome a guard, you'd find the storage room nearby and you'd have your gear and equipment for most of the session. And he was surprised that we did actually play fully four hours. And for the, we, the vast majority of the time, the players yeah. were lost in bl pitch black darkness, <clears throat> didn't have light, yeah. couldn't see. We had one single elf character with infravision that was forced to lead the party the whole time with no armor and no weapons. The party was very quickly mostly naked <clears throat> because they start off with loincloths as the only thing they've got. And they very quickly start uh, MacGyvering that into various implements. So within five minutes, our friend Rebecca was like, yep, I take off my loincloth and I use it for this and I use it for that. And now I'm naked. And pretty much everybody in the party was literally naked, lost in pitch black darkness tunnels um, for the most, of the most of the session. And they were a little bit surprised that it went on and on and on like that. It's... It's funny because I was, I was trying to think of other other scenarios that use this trope of you're you're captured, you're thrown in prison, you don't you have nothing. Um, the major one that jumps out at me is if you remember, there was in the '90s there was a reprinting of the basic D and D set that was in a large black box that's kind of like board game sized, right? So a big rectangle box, not your typical little digest or uh, 
book-sized box. You know, meant I think meant to like go on the shelf with other board games to draw new players in. And this included a scenario that was very much a teaching scenario. Like this scenario is going to teach GMs how to GM. It's going to teach players how to play. And it starts with the players arrested in prison. And the fact is you have, not only do you have nothing, but you have literally nothing. You have no race, you have no class, you have no skills, you have no attributes, you have nothing. Oh, weird. And then it uses this trope to teach you the game. Okay, well now, oh, you want to break out of the prison? Now we have to introduce the idea of stats. Are you strong enough to bend the bars? Are you, you know, nimble enough to, you know, find a rat bone and pick the lock, right? And then, and then bit by bit as you escape, it introduces stuff. Okay, now you overcome the guards and you find, uh, you know, your, you know, some swords or some some weapons hidden, stashed away. And okay, now you break into this room and you find, you know, some bows and arrows. And now you can do range combat. Now you break into this room and you find, you know, spells and magic. So, you know, very quickly in that scenario, you do get statted out and you do get stuff because the whole point is to introduce you to rules as you go. Weird. <clears throat> very much like yeah. a like a video game with a with a tutorial session. It is very much like a moves video game tutorial of playing D anD. d But I feel like that's that cool. is common, right? Like, there's other. I'm trying to think of other scenarios. Maybe, maybe that solo is that that solo one we played where you're thrown in prison. Yes, yeah, similar. Yep. You and I did a solo session, right? And then very quickly, yeah, you're, right. you're like, and I break into the locker, and here's all my equipment. Great, yep. I'm equipped. <laughs> that tends to, you know, right? That tends to be the idiom is that you're one room away from your stuff. Yeah. So, um, so, and so this, lesson, lessons learned here is if you're running a prison and you're going to take away someone's valuable equipment, keep that equipment far, far away from where they're being imprisoned. This is good advice. Throw it in a lake. All you wardens. Yeah. All you dungeon masters. Um, yeah. and, and that's actually what they were. There actually is a lake. I mean, I don't know if you're picking that if yeah. you, you buy on, on purpose, but there actually is a lake in this game and there that's where the equipment actually is off on a boat that's not in the actual session. Um, so some interesting play, right? So among the interesting play was, you know, we have like among our great players is is our friend Maggie, right? And she's such a great D&D player, so prepared, right? She comes and without anybody asking, she's always there with the graph paper, with the map. She's got the pencil, she's ready to map. So for the, for the third, fourth year now, here she is. She's going to map. She's, I described the first place and I look at her and I go, you don't have anything to map with. You don't have, you don't have ink. You don't have paper. You don't have light. And, and Mag and, and multiple people are recalling that was possibly the single like meanest moment of the whole adventure is when Maggie looked around with her normal protocol of how she's going to help the party and me just nixing it right off the bat was possibly the single meanest thing of like, you can't even map, um, that is which is funny. in the adventure. I didn't make that up. And think, then in uh, addition, she had the half elf, right? She had, she, uh, she had the elven character and yeah. we're, you know, the, the original tournament has nine PCs. We only had six people playing and we narrowly avoided having nobody within provision. We were on the table Oof. picking the PCs and went one, two, three, four, yeah. five, humans and halflings that don't have infravision and then finally maggie took the the character she normally takes that has infravision so on the one hand you know she I, the the mapping was taken away from her but on the other hand she was forced unusually <laughs> to be the leader she, they, was, they basically the party had no choice whatsoever she had to be the leader and you know this is which i kind of love i actually kind of love having 
players that aren't normally the leader of the party thrust into a role where they have to be that role mm-hmm. and they're uncomfortable and they're kind of fighting through it. And, and uh, you know, and usually wonderful things happen and this was no different. This was just super interesting to see the player fight through their little bit of discomfort about whether they were comfortable with this and everybody else saying, you're the only one that can see, we all link hands and she leads the way and we trust her. Um, and that was actually really, really fabulous play. And I love that. That's delightful. That's delightful. Did so well. And I, oh, darn it, she played in it. Okay, I was just I was just looking at my records and I was going to recommend if you could contrive it next year, you should run the module Stone Sky Delve and see if you can get Maggie to play in it. But I was just looking it up. I did run it in 2012 and she was okay. a player in that game. Okay. Uh, I don't okay. remember what her reaction to that particular game is, but uh, I'm reminded of that. Okay, spoilers for Stone Sky Delve. Reminded of that because one of the big gotcha moments in that game is around the mapping because the map is it's a it's a spelunking through a cave system and the map is three dimensional, and so like the very I remember when I played in it in 2010, some I I sat down I think to map and the GM said, well, how are you orienting your map? Is it top down or is it side to side? And I was like, what? Because literally right. the GM has both of those maps <laughs> right. and can describe right. everything three-dimensionally. And right. it's, it, is a, it is a big, big kind of mind-melting moment to try and map that, that dungeon because it's Great. Great. I think I was <laughs> telling you about that back at the time. Two, so two things. So, and I'll say that the, you know, with, with 15 minutes to go in this session of Saints, I thought at least half the party was going to die. So they were no. near. They were near an exit, and they had they had a final really tough challenge. And I was like, "Well, they're screwed." They this normally the the my players are they're, they're so good. They're they're such high quality. I continually assume that they're going to die. Sometimes I ramp up the the monsters or something like that, and just like, "Well, this is this is just going to be murder." And they always they inevitably find a way to fight through, no matter how much I'm not trying to give them any help. And so this one, I with 15 minutes to go, I was like, okay, this time they can't get out of this. This one, they're doomed. I think maybe a couple of the stronger characters can maybe fight their way through. This time we're going to have an over 50% body count. And with fifth, and 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 it's this is just a done deal. And with 15 minutes to go, our friend Dave came up with the key idea that was needed. And by God, they act, they all came out alive. Right. Right, right on, right on the time of four hours. Right as time expired, um, and once again, I was like, "Boy, they, someone comes, sums up, someone comes up with the the clutch play, and it's amazing to watch." Okay, here's here's my my question for you. Uh, for, I guess two part question. Part one: Did they escape? Yes. Okay. Did they do so in a way that the module predicts? Yes. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things I find about that module, as delightful as it is, um, is that uh, there, it's. I think it is. It, it, it presents itself as like, oh, it's really time to think outside the box, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have none of your normal resources. You really have to come up with creative stuff. And yet, I think the module predicts most of the things that are in fact possible. I don't think I've ever seen someone play it and them and have them come up with some crazy, out of left field idea that defies what's written in the in the text of the module 
I, I that think maybe makes just sense because they are so resource limited that there just yes. really are only so many options of things they could do. Exactly. Exactly. It's so restrictive. And you don't like in normal D and D. Frequently, you'll have some kind of magic power that gets used in yeah. you know in some weird uh, bent way that you didn't foresee. And this very explicitly strips all that away from you. You have no magic. You have well, I guess there's like a scroll you can get at some point. Um, but but even that is like really low level stuff. It's like you can read magic if you like. There's you there's a way to get a light spell. There's a way to get a jump spell in the, in the written text very low level mundane and other than that just a bunch of mundane stuff and you even need to know a little bit of physics frankly um yeah. in order to kind of put was, the pieces together there isn't very much to to get to surprise the dm with yeah i'm trying to remember that the time i played in it uh my group ended up escaping via the underwater route and um the trick we ended up using and i can't remember if the module predicts this or not is that we had killed some giant insect which had a hard carapace and we flipped mm -hmm. it upside down so that we could create an air bubble and shove it underwater, right? So that we could walk in an air bubble. <laughs> that, that, that's really interesting because so so my players. Yeah. So uh, there's there's a there's a there's a giant crustacean at some point. My players absolutely tried that exact thing, and I prohibited it. Oh, you prohibited it? Really? That's how yeah. we escaped. Why did you prohibit I, I it? I banned that. Why? I, I said Wonderful. it was too unwieldy and it and I said it was too unwieldy and it got it trying to carry water stuck it on the stuck it on the tunnel roof. Uh, trying to carry yeah. air stuck in the tunnel roof. You didn't even give him a roll? You didn't give him a chance to succeed? Nope. Do not give them any help. <laughs> I don't think you've I don't think you read that part. That's not help. That's will, a plausible they will escape or, method. They will demand or beg concessions. Do not give them any help. I didn't give There's them any no help. There's no concession even, there. That is a reasonable even I felt escape sorry method. For them. <laughs> no concessions doesn't there. Fit, there is a chance that that's part of that tunnel. No. 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 You, no. Not, why not? No. No, no, no description in that tunnel says the carapace. Not in the book. Then how did the crustacean get in there in the first Therefore, place? Therefore, it doesn't work. It grew up there. It grew up there like the, like the subterranean like fish that it's eating. Just like no, the subterranean fish I wish I was, I wish I was in that session. I wish I was in that session so I could have debated this with you. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been like, no. Yeah, that would have been fun for everybody. <laughs> that's, that's a fun, fun time for all. No, my players had to find another way. I banned that, and oh. my players were so good. They still found a way to succeed. They still found a Nonetheless. way. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, w I will say so, okay so here's the thing okay so here's the thing that i wanted to debate with you a little bit longer so yeah, yeah. your experience your yeah. experience with multiple playthroughs of of escape from the dungeon of the slave lords has been if i hear you correctly clearly what happens is you wind up putting the wizards in the front of the party because they have better dexterity and therefore better armor class and that was absolutely not what happened in my playthrough session whatsoever. And I feel that the the observation was that, okay, the wizards have like maybe a two-point AC bonus, maybe a two-point AC bonus. Maybe somebody else is AC 9 and, and we're AC 7 in, in original D&D. And that doesn't remotely counteract the difference in hit points for yeah. the, the beefier fighter characters and they're better attack uh, you know, scores if something does pop up and they have to start punching at the death. 
So do you really feel that the, the couple points of AC made a big difference on those playthroughs? I don't know. I'm trying to remember now. Um, I, I feel like um, I feel like the general idea was that if anything popped up by surprise, that would at least help statistically in that first round, that first round of attacks. And then the players could reconfigure and get the fighters up front so that they could make attacks or whatnot. But the hope was like, I don't know, if somebody's in the darkness with an arrow and they shoot into our group, you know, less likely to hit the the, the better armor class people up front. Um, did it did it actually help? I, I don't know. I haven't done any kind of like statistical analysis on it or not. But I know that is what my playgroup did, and I saw other players do it as well. Um, huh. Yeah. But That's I will nice. say... All the playgroups I played, whether I was as a player or as a DM, all found light sources much faster than it sounds like your group did. Yeah. It took us and a long time. And that, that just boils down to luck, I think, right? Because in the very beginning, there's like four directions you can go and just pick one, right? And mm-hmm. one or two of them lead to light and the others don't. And eh, which one do you randomly pick? A little bit, um, you know. There was a there was a place. There was an opportunity for one that had like a lot of danger to it, and um, the players uh, bypassed that. And I really don't blame them. There's there's a pretty there's a there's an initial encounter that is possibly just like frankly, uh, there's a monster that can kill with one hit. Uh, with the with the if you go by the rules of the module, and so. The very first, frankly, this very first encounter, one of my, you know, one of my players just tried to go for a rock, just tried to go pick up a little bit of stone because that mm-hmm. was like resource they could possibly find. And I got a free attack on them. And for, before I rolled the dice, I was like, like probably what's going to happen here is that I'm going to one hit kill this player on the very first roll is what's about to happen because they have no armor. I've got a better than 50% chance to hit them. And then they they could get poisoned to death. And I'm probably just going to one-shot the very first character here. And they got, they got lucky and it didn't happen. But I, I actually support them not going in for the uh, the, the, the save or die uh, encounter that's right off the bat there. So it did, it did, they were in the dark for a long time. A long time. Um, did, I'm, I'm going to get very specific now. Did they encounter the Myconids? They did. They wound up encountering yeah. most everything. Oh, really? Did they talk to the Myconids? That's because I feel like that's the one and only uh, encounter uh, in the whole thing where possibly you could actually communicate with the with the the other. I misspoke. I misspoke. Actually, that's I, that, that's not true. They they encountered the the kobolds which are in a slightly similar series of caves, which is how how my brain just got confused there. They actually did not. Now, I agree with you, Paul, because, and and this is one of the things I've been doing this to, you know, re-experiment with classic AD&D tournaments, right? And this is the most fully formed published tournament modules that they had from the time. It it lines out the, um, it outlines the scoring very specifically. Uh, it tells you exactly what parts of the modules were used for the tournament as opposed to the later add-on stuff. And um, I was thinking about the same issue is it very, the whole series, 
you know, you put it all together, there's like really nine sessions worth of, of play here. It says very specifically for the tournament purposes, nothing's going to negotiate with you. All the monsters oh, fight to the death. They never make morale checks. Nothing's going to run away. Nothing's going to surrender. In order to keep the encounters balanced for every single play group that runs through this, right? Every single fight is to the death. No questions asked at the end. And I find that that is incredibly hard for you know modern players to digest right no matter how i tried to deliver that over the years and how i tried to excuse that i guess of like well they're they're meant they're magically controlled or they're you know mentally you know traumatized or or they're 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 picked because they're they're chaotic mentally or something like that inevitably no matter how many times i i said that the some player is going to run in and go Throw down your weapons and surrender. And I'm like, I, 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 this is not what you know the the session is about. And so I think I'm probably gonna, I think I might call this experiment done for me. Is that the the old school tournaments are really are really hard really hard to swallow for modern players that it doesn't look like what they expect from a role playing game. And having said all that, you get to this last session. And then suddenly there is one single encounter where it's important to actually have a role-playing negotiation. And it's the only place in the entire series after I have for years told people this is impossible. Um, and I'm like, that's going to be, they didn't actually wind up encountering it, but I was really worried about it. And I was highlighting that section very rigorously because I was worried about possibly not playing it right because I was out of practice. It's it's really I, weird that right at the end you have this one yeah. thing where it's actually important to negotiate with somebody. I mean, I think that's for me that's that's one of the shining points of this module, right? Is that I I mean, that to me I agree with your players that that is D&D and I like the idea that there is a negotiation potential for negotiation scene in in the in the scenario. Unfortunately, I've never seen it. I've never seen it happen. I think I've had exactly one group who reached the Myconids and yeah. they if I recall, they were so terrified by them, they turned tail and fled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny that they were seen they anyone were... communicate with them. Yeah, it, it's funny that, that you know this the 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 misstatement I just made is actually because I was so focused on them. I mean, they're on the cover. They're on the cover of the module, <laughs> yeah. right? They they were invented for this module. If you know what myconid myconids are, the the you know fungus people. They were invented specifically for this module. So if you were a player at the time, you have never seen this before. You have no idea that this is even possible. Um, and I was so I was so focused on that particular encounter that I've actually just tricked myself into thinking that we played through it and when we didn't. Um, it's a shame because it does. I, I will it does, say, it does seem to me like like the most exciting part of the scenario, and yet I've never actually seen it. So one thing that I, and it's so funny, you don't learn these things, you can read it forever, or I can read it forever, and I don't actually discover these things until I play through it, is that um, topologically, the dungeon has a particular choke point. There's the starting point of the labyrinth with a number of tunnels that possibly interconnect and backtrack on each other. And there's one specific area that you have to go through that then branches off into this other part of the dungeon. And this other part of the dungeon has the fungus men and has the other exits. So if you don't, if you don't happen to get through that particular one choke point, you're not gonna run into the myconids 
and you're gonna be stuck with the one single possible exit that that apparently all of our playgroups have been have gone through, Paul. So um, I think that that's a little bit of an explanation about why that's been our experience every time we've run this. All right, Dan, we are rapidly running out of time, and uh, and I don't want to just completely take up. I had eight other things I was going to talk about. Four. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want I want to ask because you you know you did run another D and D game, and I want to hear I want to hear about it um, uh, specifically because I ran just a, a regular fairly straightforward dungeon crawl using OD&D. And it's been a couple years almost at this point yeah. that I've run OD&D. And I'm still using the same OED stuff that I've been using, which is several versions old at this point. Uh, I still have the deck of spells uh, that we printed out ages ago. And I remember checking in with you and being like, is, is this going to be just like completely, you know, screw with our players if we have players who are playing in your games and my games and my spells are radically different. Um, so speaking of that, you ran a game specifically of a high-level wizard fight um, to test out some of the higher-level spells to for a potential future version of of uh, Book of Spells. No, I have this. I have this scenario that I'm calling Wizards Warzone at the moment, and a number of our current viewers have have played in sessions on Roll Twenty. Actually, um, so some of our viewers are extra familiar mm-hmm. with this. So last Sunday, I got to play it. You know, not on Roll Twenty, but in person. With a, with a much larger group of players, so around a table with seven live players. And I'm we're having a blast with it. We had a blast live. I'm loving this session to death. And in the back of my brain, I'm almost like, maybe this is just my thing now. Maybe my thing is I just I just run this Wizards War Zone. I'm gonna I'm gonna go around to conventions everywhere and just run this because I'm pretty damned happy with it. And it is it, it's fun. You know, I've always been fascinated with high-level D&D and the feel that maybe it wasn't quite playtested and broken. So I enjoy high-level stuff. So I get to scratch that itch and give every single person a 12th-level wizard. They have full access to every single spell in the book, uh, basically an original D&D, as edited in my, my OED book of spells. And then three, as I've been trying to work on a new edit for book of spells, you're right, I get to playtest the little bit of tweaks on the spells and probably 95% the same as, as what I've had before. But then there are these key things that pop up. And one of the, one of the fascinating experiences with this, first of all, I was worried that, you know, original D&D spells are not made for this. They're not made for a magic, the gathering style PVP, you know, contention. Give us quickly the, Give us quickly one minute of the setup here. So it's it's every player's got a 12th level wizard. Are they just in a giant yep. arena and just go kill each other, please? Is, is there any other yeah. interesting uh, terrain or other creatures or other characters involved? Uh, no other characters, <clears throat> usually no other creatures, but I have a, um, <clears throat> I have a, a repository of multiple different arena battle maps in, in different mm-hmm. geographic locations. Um, and so, uh, randomly or pseudo randomly, I pick what arena you're going to be battling in today. And the players Mm -hmm. have to be kind of quick on the uptake, try to guess what spells might be more or less useful in this particular place. So just for starters, the place that I always start people with is a, uh, a desert valley under blazing hot sun. There's, there's very quickly ongoing heat damage that has a sandy surface, which, which can foil invisibility if someone goes running through it 
There's a big mm -hmm. cliff on one side. There's a bunch of big boulders on the other side. And so like among the action that happened and, it, and it's everybody against everybody else, uh, there's a point system for, you know, who you eliminate and stuff like that. And so like among the action we saw on Sunday was uh, a bunch of elementals were summoned. People love invisible stalker. Uh, people are throwing fireballs, obviously. One person is controlling an elemental up on a cliff. Our friend Lauren casts move earth, takes control of the cliff and tries to shove the cliff into the middle of the arena in order to expose that person that's controlling the elemental. Well, that wizard starts running at the same speed that the cliff is moving underneath them, thereby staying directly <laughs> in one place, right, from turn to turn. Um, uh, someone uh, flew up on one of the big boulders uh, and then started casting web down on, you know, to catch people as they're running between the boulders for cover and then cast mm -hmm. wall, you know, wall spells to try to defend themselves. Someone else casts anti-magic sphere, which takes down the walls that they were using for defenses. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, actually one or two of our players cast magic jar. And Steven was like, I think there's a whole bunch of homo homogeneous rocks around here. If I cast magic jar on a rock, will anybody be able to find it? I say no. So zap, his body apparently dies. He's his soul's transported into an indistinguishable rock on the surface. And then, you know, of course you can take possession from that and everybody flees, right? Everybody just runs on the next round as far as, as far as away as possible, <laughs> right? Our friend Alistair cast hallucinatory terrain to try to trick people into a place that they thought might be cool from the, from the heat damage. So initially I was worried that there'd be one single spell that just broke the game and, and actually, among my top prospects was possibly Feeble Mind, right? Which is the, the canonical mm -hmm. anti-wizard spell. So I was worried this game would just come down to Feeble Mind, Feeble Mind. And that's not happening at all, right? There's, there's this really mm -hmm. wonderful conocopia of effects that are getting shot around of any level. People love Mirror Image, okay? Someone casts yep. a Mirror Image. Yep. The next person in line yep. casts a bunch of magic missiles, one on each, and wipes out the Mirror Image. Right. So even first level <laughs> spells like yeah. Magic Missile are great for that. Lauren polymorphs into a dragon, starts flying over the terrain, and then Ryan hits her with Dispel Magic, turns back into human form, falls into an endless abyss. Right. And Lauren says, <laughs> oh, I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know it was a thing that could happen. So we're yeah. having a, yeah. a wonderful time with it. And in the past, when I, I'm just so excited, I could go for a whole hour just about this. Maybe we'll do another, yeah. we'll do yeah. another, another episode in the future. Well, but um, when I've passed the book around the past for feedback, people, you know, scan it and go, yeah, looks great. When they play it, now they've got opinions. Now they've got very specific opinions about very yeah. specific yeah. spells. And I'm getting so much better feedback when, when we all have to eat our own dog food. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's fantastic. I would, I, I, I mean, we should do, we should do a whole show just on going through the spells at this point. It's given, given all the feedback you've received. I think that'd be really, really fascinating. All right. We are out of time. So, uh, viewers, if you have any thoughts, uh, I'm going to especially end with like, you have thoughts on high level OD and D spells, you questions or, or opinions on how things work, uh, post them in the comments because I feel like this is coming. We're going to, we're going to have to do a show on high level OD and D spells. 
Um, so that's coming. So get, get your questions in in the comments uh, of this video, and uh, we will address uh, those in the future show. Definitely, definitely. And of course, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, GitHub, and TikTok. We have the handle Wandering DMs on all those sites. And you know, maybe we've got 2,001 subscribers on YouTube now, so please be 2,002. Hit that, hit that <laughs> subscribe button. We really appreciate it all the time as we grow. If you prefer to listen to us in audio-only podcast format, you can do so. Our uh, shows are available on our website at wanderingdams.com as well as various podcast carriers such as iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. If you're listening to us right now on one of those carriers and they offer the ability to do so, please rate and review our show. That helps other users of that site find us, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. And of course, big thanks to our patrons who support the Wandering DMs show. If you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wandering DMs. And as usual, uh, every single tier gets you access to our Discord server where we have continuing discussions about our other games and our conventions and our playtest sessions and high level spells and stuff like that. Um, upcoming this week, uh, I'll be back with Dan Cullinan Thursday night at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time for more Book of War playtests. We, you know, a couple people have started paying attention to that on Twitter and, and passing that around that I think are new to the show, which is great. We had a wonderful, dramatic episode uh, two weeks ago. And if you haven't, if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend the last episode. So Dan and I will be back. The, the, the person that lost last time will be looking for revenge uh, because it got really heated last time. And, you know, there's a whole lot of high level magic there. So that's another that's another venue where my playtests are feeding into each other and we get to experiment with this high level magic that many of us don't usually use in D&D &D, and that has become a major major part of our book of war D&D wargaming. So I'm looking forward to that on Thursday. And um I think that's I think that's and then we'll be back on on Sunday, right Paul? Yep. Yep, we'll be right back here on Sunday. So uh yeah, come join us. Cool, cool. And of course, we'll be uh, in the after party chat. So join join us uh, very soon for that. In just about 10 minutes. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Every Sunday. Uh, we, yeah, of course, we are live uh, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us next week for another thought provoking discussion. We'll see you then.